Professor Laura Empson. And I'm David Morley. And welcome to Leading Professional People. In this series, we bring together cutting-edge theory and first-hand experience to offer in-depth insights into the unique challenges of leading professional people. This episode begins on the eve of a partner conference for a leading professional service firm. I got the call at midnight. The partner's dinner had finished and I'd returned to my room to work on the speech I was going to be giving to the conference the following morning. And the chairman was on his phone asking me to join him for a crisis meeting in his hotel suite. Oh, interesting. Yes. He said there was a group of dissatisfied partners downstairs in the hotel bar plotting a coup. They were drinking heavily and talking about their plans to depose the managing partner the next day. That's not good. How did that get that bad? Well, the managing partner had always been a controversial figure and the partners were attracted to his vision for the firm, but they were becoming increasingly concerned about how he was trying to bring about the vision. He was ambitious and hard-driving for himself as well as the firm. But unfortunately, when he got stressed, which was often, this translated into an impatient and abrasive attitudes towards some of the partners. Mm, This is not good leadership behaviour. Well, no. (laughs) Many partners shared his ambitions and they felt he was moving too slowly. But many others felt threatened and thought he was trying to exercise too much power. Okay, so that sounds like a classic tension that you get in many professional firms between continuity and change. Some want change, some want continuity. Yes, and down in the bar, the most disaffected partners from both of these groups were coming together and starting to form a coalition to unseat the managing partner. So what happened? I'm David Morley. I'm a lawyer with 40 years experience, including leadership of over 3,000 lawyers around the world for 13 years at law firm Allen & Overy. And I now run my own consultancy, helping leaders of professional firms succeed. And I'm Professor Laura Empson. And I started life in investment banking and strategy consulting, but I've dedicated the past 30 years as an academic to researching, analysing and advising the complex, peculiar and fascinating world of professionals and the organisations they work within. And it is fascinating. One of the things that we're going to be doing over the course of this series is investigating a series of dilemmas that arise when you're leading professional people. And we're really going to dig deeper into what goes on in these organisations and how on earth do you lead them in any kind of meaningful way. Sometimes people ask me why I focused on studying professional firms for 30 years, which I admit is a rather long time. But I remain absolutely fascinated by them because I think they encompass really all the the biggest challenges that leaders of organisations have to deal with. These firms are full of highly opinionated, highly educated, and often surprisingly emotional people who who really care passionately about their organisation and passionately about their own careers. And somehow they all have to work together to kind of put aside their individual needs and desires and achieve something collectively. And that is incredibly difficult. It's much more difficult than it looks, I think. (laughs) These are quite complicated people. But the good thing is that they're also very bright. Yeah, one of the things I've always wondered, David, is these firms are so extraordinarily difficult to lead. Why on earth would anyone want to do it? I mean, particularly, why did you want to do it? God, that's a difficult question. It certainly wasn't for the thanks. (laughs) 
because it can sometimes be a pretty thankless uh, job. But I think it's something about having a sort of sense of ambition for the organisation itself and what the organisation can perform and, and where it can go to. And it's not really about glory or power, um, at least that's what I would say publicly. I was thinking back to the first time I met you and it was actually, uh, we met at Leeds Castle um, at an event that you'd organised for your sort of, your top 30 or top 50 clients and you'd invited me along and I didn't really know you at all back then. Um, but I had a chance to observe you very closely as you learnt how to herd geese. <laughs> and as one of the things you were doing to keep your clients entertained, you'd brought in a shepherd and a set of shepherd dogs and a flock of geese. And he was training you all, the lawyers and, and, and your clients, on how to herd geese. So I always remember the sight of you up to your ankles in dewy grass going, away, away, come by, come by, as, as the geese ran madly all over the place. What, David Bo Peake? <laughs> <laughs> I never really saw myself in that role. <laughs> oh, it, was, it, was, um, it was a very memorable experience <laughs> for me. And since then, David and I have worked together a lot on and off in various capacities and become really good friends. And I think one of the reasons we wanted to work on this podcast together was because we have really quite complementary perspectives on these firms. We are fascinated by professional service firms and I bring all my kind of academic rigour and theoretical orientation and and sort of structured thinking. And David, well, what exactly do you bring, David? <laughs> well, I suppose I bring the practical application of that because I lived it for so many years, um, leading 3,000 lawyers at my uh, previous firm. And I must say, I loved it. I mean, I meet many people who, in those leadership positions, who go around with an air of misery hanging around their neck. And I, I never experienced that myself. I thought it was great. I really enjoyed it. I had my moments, uh, as you do, if you can imagine trying to lead 3,000 lawyers and trying to get them all to go in any one particular direction. Of course, you do have your moments. But, but I loved it, most of all, because I think they were such smart, motivated people. So for me, the fascination was, you know, how do you motivate these people to sort of work together to achieve a common purpose? That was really the fascination for me. Now, we talked about the dilemmas involved in leading firms like these. And um, at the top, we kicked off by me telling you a story. And I, I was thinking, there's a lot in this story that, that I find interesting. Um, one of the real tensions, the paradoxes, in that story is this need to balance the demands of the individual with the desires of the collective. And if we think about these firms really as a kind of a complex set of interpersonal dynamics, they they have a very simple economic model. All the complexity comes from the fact that the income generation is entirely dependent on the way that these professionals work together. So all the time, your need to balance the desire of individuals to achieve their own goals with trying to get them to understand that there is something bigger than themselves individually they need to work to try and achieve. Yeah. And I think this is key to leadership of these organisations is to recognise this need and desire, deep-seated desire that professional people have for autonomy to be able to operate. They hate being told what to do. Uh, and in fact, you know, anyone who's ever been involved in leadership in uh, of professional people will know that telling them what to do 
is the least successful strategy that you could ever adopt. So it opens the question as to, well, what strategies do you adopt then if you can't tell them what to do? And how do you balance this desire for autonomy that they each individually have? And by the way, they have complete control over this because in the end, it's the professionals who have access to the clients, not the leaders, not the managers. So if there's something going on that they don't like, they'll just turn around and say, the clients don't like it. Yeah, and they also have complete control over you, ultimately, because they can depose you, they elected you, you only serve at their behest, and they can get rid of you if you're no longer fulfilling their needs, as we were starting to see in this story. I think there's something else that is always a bit surprising for people who don't understand professional firms is that profit maximisation isn't necessarily the overarching objective. It might be sort of superficially, but it's not necessarily what gets people really excited. They're going to be excited by a variety of different things. And remember, these are people who you know, practically give themselves body and soul to working in their organisations, you know, horrendously long hours and for many decades, often in one individual firm. So they're not just doing it for the money because a lot of them are already richer than they ever imagined they could be. They're doing it for a complex set of reasons. Um, sometimes they're doing it for status, to feel like somebody, to feel important. Sometimes they're doing it just because they find the nature of the work absolutely fascinating. Sometimes they're doing it because they believe in something sort of more profound. They actually believe that the work they're doing is really, really important to society. Now, that might be hard to believe, David, as a lifelong corporate lawyer, but a lot of professionals are driven by this. No, I, d I readily believe that. I mean, I know of one firm I worked with who had a partners conference and they had a vote about what level of profit the firm should be aiming for. When the results came in, much to the shock of the management and leadership team, the partnership voted for lower profits. I think that was a bit of a mistake, actually, as it turned out. But there's a, you're right, there's a complex set of emotions here. I mean, you know, profitability of these firms, as comes out in your story can be very important because it's like a scoreboard that people see as it's a proxy for quality. The higher your profits, the higher the quality of the firm. I don't think it's quite that connection, but that connection is held in a lot of uh, partners' minds. And a lot of highly performing professionals, they want to be sure that they're working at a place, you know, A-team players want to be with other A-team players. And so they look at the profitability and if the profitability is much lower or significantly lower than others, they start to have doubts about whether they're in the right place. And once you start losing your star partners, you don't have a firm. You don't have any of the other assets in these firms. All your assets go up and down in the lift every day. There's nothing else. You're reminding me actually of strategy offsite I facilitated for a professional firm a while back when the one most important bit of advice I was given by the managing partner is don't mention profits. And I had to get them to uh, design and, and buy into a, a new strategic vision that was totally disassociated from the concept of profitability. So there is so much about professional firms which challenge conventional assumptions about management. And I think another element that I find fascinating about professional firms is the way in which organisational politics is, is runs through them like the lifeblood of the firm. One of the reasons, because power is distributed so widely and because most senior people lack much formal authority, they have to become very skilled politicians, learning how to make trade-offs, how to uh, satisfy powerful individuals, what to give, what to take away. So, 
political manoeuvring is an integral part of leading these firms. But intriguingly, it's something that a lot of leaders really deny and are quite resistant to. I see, David, you're nodding. Yeah, they deny it because, you know, to come out and be overtly political is a death knell for your any kind of leadership career in a professional firm. You know, professional people, they don't like to think that you are too eager to have power over them. Um, so any kind of overt political behaviour is really uh, not going to win you any votes in that kind of uh, situation. But it's so weird because, you know, you say, talk, talk about winning votes, and actually these uh, leadership elections are set up like formal political elections. So you can have manifestos, you can have hustings, you can have candidates debates. Sometimes you even bring in journalists to interview the candidates and at the end of it all there's a vote. So the sort of overall trappings like political parties and like political leadership is, is very much there. But as you say, there's this kind of reluctance which you have to display. I, I remember again a story from one of the firms I studied where um, one of the candidates got into terrible trouble because a memo from his so-called campaign manager was distributed where he was talking about forming coalitions. And and this went viral within the firm. And the guy was dead in the water after that. But all he'd done was was admit <laughs> that he really wanted the job and was prepared Fatal to... Error. Yeah. <laughs> Very If you peculiar. want the job too much, then they definitely don't want you. <laughs> yeah, so what you have in these firms is another tension coming through here. You need to be incredibly ambitious as a professional. You want to be the best to do outstanding work for your clients, and yet reluctant and as a leader. And, it, and it's only really once you've displayed that reluctance that your colleagues may trust you enough to give you any kind of power over them. And I think one of the things we saw in the story that I told at the beginning was that really maybe the managing partner seemed to be enjoying his power too much. Yes, it does sound like that because I could totally recognise the dynamic that came out in that story. I can see that you've got an ambitious leader who wants to drive the firm forward, which in principle is the kind of leader that you would want for a, a firm. And yet he's struggling to bring people with him. And uh, I think what came out of that story was you've you've got two factions have developed. You've got those that prefer it the way it was, or maybe don't necessarily prefer it the way it was, but don't want it to change quite as quickly as perhaps he's uh, proposing. And then on the other hand, you've got those who are thinking it's not changing fast enough. And that dynamic is playing out. It, it, it doesn't sound to me from the story that you told that he's handling that dynamic particularly well, the managing partner. If it's got to the stage where you've got factions of partners talking about votes of no confidence, that sounds pretty bad. I can't quite understand how he's let that get out of control so easily. Well, I think we need to think about here is relationship and the tension between the desire for harmony and the need for conflict. So think about these partners in this firm had been together for many of them for 20 years or so. They'd been at uh, many of them at university together, some of them even at, at school together. They went to you know each other's families, weddings and christenings and all that kind of stuff. There was a need to preserve this sense of harmony within the firm. But actually, conflict was was necessary in order to get things done. And I think this is one of the reasons they kept electing this managing partner. Remember, this was his third time of office. He'd been successfully elected twice. And I think it was because he was willing to sort of push the boundaries and, and break through some of this kind of cosy consensus, which they felt was holding the firm back. 
And what they had tried to do by electing the, the chairman to work with him was to try and balance that out. The chairman had been with the firm for a very long time. He was trusted and respected. He was indeed loved by a lot of the guys who'd, who'd worked for him over the years. And they thought that he would be a calming influence on the managing partner. And he, he was, to a large extent. He, he was there as a kind of buffer between the managing partner and the rest of the partnership. But as the managing partner got more and more frustrated the chairman was getting more and more exhausted of no longer willing to keep sort of taking the punches from him. It does sound a bit, though, that like the managing partner had reached a point, if he was, this was the third time he'd been elected, maybe there's a danger here that he'd become a little bit beginning to believe his own PR too much and he'd stop listening, perhaps. And I, I have seen that happen in leaders, that they it happens quite commonly that people... They achieve a certain position as leader. They stay in that position for a number of years and they begin to believe that they are almost infallible or that at least they know better than everybody else and they stop listening to what's going on around them. Because from the description that you gave of the kind of conflict that was blowing up there, it sounds very much like there was a degree of frustration, not just by him, but also by a significant group within the partnership at the way he's behaving. And that's a leadership failure, I would say. Yes, but I think we need to also think about this from a psychodynamic perspective. And if you think about the partnership as this complex human system, like an extended family, I think the partners were also projecting a lot of their unresolved anger and frustration onto the managing partner, and he was absorbing it and expressing it and acting it out. So the rest of the partners could sort of sit back and think, oh, you know, he's such a tough guy, he's such a, you know, bully or whatever. But actually, all he was doing was kind of sucking up all their unexpressed frustration with each other. And he became this kind of lightning rod for all all the emotions that they weren't prepared to express to each other face to face somehow he kind of became the, the focus of all that attention so they could get angry with him rather than get angry with each other. Yeah, but from his perspective, as a leader, that makes him less effective, I would say, to allow himself to get into that position where he's lost control of the agenda, it sounds like, or is in danger of losing control of the agenda. And he's not able to get sufficient numbers of partners with him to move the firm in the direction that he thinks is right. So that's a failure from a leadership perspective. Absolutely. And then just to put it in context, though, and you'll remember this, you know, any of these people who move into leadership positions got there by having first been outstandingly good at earning fees and giving uh, professional advice to their clients. I mean, he was, he didn't know anything about leadership. He just worked it out as he went along. And he brought with it all his vulnerabilities, insecurities and inadequacies, as well as all his brilliance and determination and drive. And there was no one there to help him become a better leader other than the chairman, who was also working it, it out as he went along as well. You know, there's, there's no rule book about how to do this. No, this is, I mean, this is one of my great bugbears, actually, about professional services, because until really very recently, there's been almost no focus on leadership as i said i mean when i became uh, a leader of my firm i had very very little in the way of of training or or preparation for it, it was very, really sink or swim and i just don't think that is the way that you should be running 
these organizations, you know, some of these organizations have got revenues $2 billion plus, some of the biggest law firms. And how can you expect to run an organization like that without any formal training or preparation. So I think the most advanced law firms are beginning to really think much more seriously now about how they invest in leadership, how they prepare people for these roles. Because it's actually, in many ways, it's a cruelty to put people into these roles without any preparation for them. Yeah, well, I'm talking about investing. I mean, that's one of the reasons that I was given a substantial grant by the um, UK government to study leadership in professional firms. And really, that's been the focus of my attention of my research the last 10 years. And that there are more publications, including work I've been publishing in recent years, which people can turn to when they first take up these roles. But it's also one of the reasons we wanted to make this podcast, because I think we get a lot of quite lonely and confused leaders of professional firms coming to us and saying, you know, what should I do? And um, we just thought it'd be a nice opportunity to spread the word a bit more widely. Um, because I think, and this is probably the final paradox I think this is embedded in this story I, I was telling. This need to appear confident whilst feeling quite insecure. I mean, the personality of the professional means that you have to learn how to front it out with your clients. You have to learn to give advice and to be willing to, you know, charge your client, you know, thousands and thousands of pounds a day for dispensing of your wisdom, whilst at the back of your mind maybe secretly thinking, I hope I'm right. So you learn how to front that out and and to put the controls in place to ensure that you are giving the right kind of advice. And then suddenly you move into this new role where you don't have that depth of expertise, you haven't had 20 years of training, you haven't got a degree in leading professional firms. And you you have to learn instead to front it out with your partners, to give them confidence in you and belief in you without at the same time appearing to be too arrogant. And it's a really tricky balance to strike. Yes. Only the cleverest, most good-looking people ever succeed. I couldn't possibly comment, <laughs> David. Anyway, over the next few episodes, we're going to be exploring all these themes, these various paradoxes with a series of guests, people who have been very successful leaders in professional firms, um, talking to people from the accounting sector, the legal sector, the consulting sector, from investment banking, a range of different sectors. And um, well, we're certainly looking forward to it. We are. You know, as you said earlier, uh, hopefully this is a bit of a contribution to an area where there's really a dearth of material. When you, If you go onto Amazon, as I did recently, and uh, look up leadership books, you'll find 20,000 leadership books. But when you look up leadership in professional services, you'll only find about a dozen, maybe. And one of them's yours, Laura. And in feed, I think you'll find mine at the very top of the list. <laughs> well, it should be, even if it's not. I think you'll find it is. <laughs> Okay, Laura, so just going back to that story we opened with, we ended it with you being invited to the chairman's hotel suite at midnight. Yeah, and I have to admit, I was pretty nervous, and, and not just because I was wondering what advice I'd give him, but I, I was relieved to see that I wasn't the only person that he had invited to his room. We talked for about a couple of hours running through various options, various scenarios, thinking about all the different players and what their needs were and how best to to manage them. And the next morning, the chairman opened the partner conference with a very clear statement. He said, I understand a lot of you 
were getting very lively in the bar last night. And a lot of you are talking about bringing a vote of no confidence. I'd like to call that vote of no confidence now. And I'd like to see who is prepared to propose it. And how many of you are going to vote? Let's just stop messing around and let's get this on the table and get the matter decided. And we sat there in silence with certainly my heart pounding. And I'm sure his heart was pounding. And we just sat there in silence. And the silence carried on. And the silence continued. And the chairman said, right, so we'll hear no more about it. You had your chance. And now I'm going to propose a vote of confidence in the managing partner. And the vote was passed unanimously. <laughs> I bet that wasn't the end of it, though. <laughs> no, no, there's, an, there's a part two. <laughs> You've been listening to Leading Professional People with Professor Laura Empson and myself, David Morley. Please subscribe to our series wherever you get your podcasts. We look forward to you joining us.